I'll be reading uh, the end of Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerasim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. If you would have a seat real quick, we'll pray over God's word for us this morning. God and Father, you have spoken uh, true and right words to us uh, here in Joshua chapter 8. Uh, but Lord, just to get a larger view of what you have done uh, in your covenants and in your commandments, uh, Lord, we uh, look to you and look to your spirit to enliven us this morning, to enliven your word in our hearts. Uh, so we pray that you would do that and accomplish that as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. I did uh, briefly consider this morning actually inviting all of us in honor of this text to go get our kids out of Kid City and to come back in and read the entirety of the law to all of us gathered together, but I figured that that would not ingratiate myself with everybody here this morning, though we could have done it, could have done it in righteousness, but what we'll do instead is just take a look at this passage and kind of the undergirding foundations of this passage so that we might rightly understand it in its own context. Nature or nurture? This, this is kind of a question that uh, is asked very often, that we even ask maybe even of our own selves. Is, uh, is it nature that I do these things or is it nurture? Was it my family or is there just something encoded in my DNA? The question nature or nurture kind of gets at and gets underneath how human beings become the way that they are. And the more that we kind of study, whether in science or psychology, we find that the answer is more invigoratingly both. The more we understand about ourselves and our DNA, we find that there are things that are just encoded into us. There are things that are just there, lying in wait for us. Not just physical things, but the way that we react to things. But we also find that there is much about the way that we are nurtured in this life that forms us. You are, we know, by human nature, both nature and nurture. So we find humans have a nature. In fact, just kind of in a macro way, in a theological way, we could say that human beings by nature are sinful, yet gloriously endowed with the image of God. That's one of the things that we are by our very nature is sinful and gloriously endowed with God's image. 
But, but then maybe on a more micro level, we can find that individuals have things that are hardwired into us, even at the DNA level. You are, by nature, uh, have natural gifts that you are to foster and steward. You are, by nature, also a person with deficits and excesses and sins. So th- there are things that we have by way of our very nature. But then contrary to a lot of pop culture and uh, opinions there, humans are not born fully formed. It's not as though we have this true inward like golden person inside of ourselves that just needs to let it express itself fully so that we could be truly and rightly known. No, uh, human beings actually have to be formed as well. We have to be nurtured as well. We are, uh, by God's ordination, actually acknowledging of this, that we are born, all of us, into a family, into a place, into a time in human history. This is true, really, for all of us. Whether your family was broken and hard or really sweet and joyful, we were all born into a context that actually had some impression on us. We were born into a place, a geography. You believe things in this world because simply where you were born. You were born into a time in human history that shaped and formed who you were and who you you are and how you think about things. For all of us, there are ways that we, uh, just by simply uh, virtue of being born, we have the privilege of certain benefits, but also loaded with certain duties as well, just simply by being formed in the families, in the place, in the time that we exist. So not one of us just has this true natural person inside of us that would have been exactly the same if it had been born at any other time in human history, but also in the midst of our families, we have these unique things inside of us that are going to just come out. We are products of both nature and nurture. But what we see is, is that we can really know and understand these things just by simple observation. We don't even have to go into it with this kind of depth. Why? Because every parent knows this simply by looking at their kids. Every parent feels a moral obligation to form their children. They know that the spaces that they exist in actually shape who they are. The institutions that they're in, the the schools that they're in are going to form them. The relationships that they have with other children or other adults are going to form who they are. If you've ever traveled the world, we actually see this and sense this, that there is a distinction even between cultures too that have everything to do with uh, distinctions in geography or time or place. If you've ever traveled the world, you can know that there are things that seem second nature to you or are deeply rooted in you that will uh, honestly rub against the sensibility of other kinds of people groups. How do we know this? You can kind of look at your moral framework. You can think about what you think is right or wrong, and you can uh, think in your head morally, we all know that blank. We all know that this is right and this is wrong. We're A Saudi may not know that like you know that, or a Korean might know something entirely different, or a Tutsi may not make these same moral assumptions that you make. What follows the words in the constitutions, we hold these truths to be self-evident, may not be so self-evident to an Indonesian. So we get to see that there are things that are naturally inside of us, but that are also nurtured as a part of our lives. 
nature or nurture? Yes, it is both. So we get to ask this question, who is truly the human being that we are? Truly, who is man? What is his nature? How ought we be nurtured? Why are we the way that we are? And here's what we, I think, actually discover in part of the text this morning is that God knows. God knows who we are by nature, and he knows how to nurture us into what we were truly meant to be. So whereas the question of nature and nurture is very uh, complicated, it's very uh, perplexing to us, God knows. And today's episode actually gives us some insight into how we have become who we are, into how you have become who you are. So ultimately, what are we going to discover this morning? What is it that we uh, ultimately discover in this passage? I want to give you a few brief words. You'll find it on your handout, is that Christians keep Christ's covenant commands. Christians keep Christ's covenant commands. And, and what we're going to do is kind of break that into a couple of different parts this morning. We're going to study each and every one of them. We're going to first study the covenant What covenants are there? What covenants are we talking about this morning? The second is, who is command keeping? Who are those who are to be keeping commands? And then lastly, how has Christ changed everything? So we're kind of breaking this up into covenants, commands, and Christ. What covenants? Who's keeping the commands? And how has Christ changed everything? So you might, you might be a little uh, confused this morning. Why, why did we start in this place of nature and nurture? What does that have to do at all with who I am and what culture I live in and how people are formed? And ultimately, we're going to find our first answer by exploring what covenants. What are these covenants? What, are the, what is this passage talking about when it talks about covenants? And the answer is that God uses covenants to shape his people. He uses it to shape his relationship with his people. He uses covenants. He uses his promises to actually shape human history. He uses covenants to to shape and form people. So let's explore this for one moment. If we were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to see our our first real expression of God's covenant, and it's with a man named Abram who he renames Abraham. So there's this Abrahamic covenant that's given to us in Genesis chapter 12, where God tells him this, go from your country, your kindred, your house, your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And then it goes further, it goes one step further, and this is where it concerns us. It also says that in you, Abraham, all of the families on earth shall be blessed. Now, this is quite the promise. There's a lot of people that look back to this promise and say that this was a, a promise given in grace. It's a covenant of grace buried in this very specific promise to this very specific man to go from your country, your kindred, your house, your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and in you all families on earth shall be blessed. This is a mighty and big promise. If you've never thought about this promise all that much, I want you to know that this promise actually extends all the way through human history, all the way through God's redemptive plan, all the way to you sitting here this morning. This promise was made to us. It is ours to have. 
And we need a little bit of context here. We need to know why it is that God would make such a big, uh, a big promise and a big plan. And what, what, is this, what comes out of this plan? What is it that this promise actually gives to us? Well, many years later, after Abraham uh, has a couple of children, and then they have a couple of children, and they have these tribes, and those tribes end up in Israel, and they incubate into this great people, we need to know some of the story here. So what I want to uh, read is actually out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. And if you want to turn there with me this morning, I'm going to be reading some sections from uh, chapter 26 and 27 of Deuteronomy. We're going to pick up in verse 5 of chapter 26, and it says this, And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. This is, this is actually Israel's testimony about who they are and where they came from. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, Few in number, and there he became a great nation, great and mighty and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord and the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So what is it that we get there? What does this history lesson teach us? It teaches us that God starts to make good on this promise that he made to Abraham. He said, you're going to be this mighty nation. And what he does there in Egypt is actually incubate his people and he grows them into a great people. They went in very few, very obscure, and they grew into a great nation. There were likely uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe even several million Israelites that were brought out of the land of Egypt. And so what we need to know first from this history lesson is that God is making good on his promise, and he actually shows this by making his people a large people. But then if we go down to verse 17, we find out that there's something else that God is doing. When he brings them into this land, it says, this day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules, that's the law, you shall therefore be careful. That's a word that we're going to use some this morning, so pay attention to it. Be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his, what does it say there? Treasured possession. His people are a treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are all to keep his commandments, and that he will set you 
uh, he will set you in praise and in fame and honor high above all nations and that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. What, what's the second thing that we've learned that God is doing with his people here? It's not just that he makes them into a very populous nation. We discover here that he's actually making them into a rooted nation in his law. So it's a treasured people, and it's a lawful people. In fact, in uh, the very first part of chapter 27, we read this. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I commanded you today, and on the day that you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord, has, uh, the Lord God has, is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. Do you get why we're now headed here this morning from what we read earlier, from what Sawyer read earlier? And you shall write on them all the words of the law. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, and when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning what which I commanded you today on Mount Ebal. And you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and shall write on these stones all the words of the law very plainly. So, so this is actually why we get to chapter 8 in Joshua. This is why they're doing what they're doing. If we just read the five verses like we did earlier this morning, we might be a little lost. Why is it that this people group that was made very large, very populous, that was receiving of the law, that was God's treasured possession, has now come into the land after having been a fairly disobedient people in the wilderness and even in the promised land like we found out last week. Why would they just go there and build an altar and then start writing the law on it and making sacrifice? Why is it that they're doing that? All of it is in good context this morning. In fact, one more piece of context and then we'll get to the, uh, the passage and really understand it Exodus 19 verse 4 says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God talking. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What a promise. So, so first, with Abraham, we see that our good God makes a promise that he keeps. So if you're following along with us this morning on the printout, God keeps his promise. He makes a promise. He makes a covenant of grace with us. But then he continues to unfold that promise. It's not a separate promise. It's the same promise of grace to us, but he unfolds it with Moses. And our good father makes a conditional promise through Moses with commands to obey in order to receive a blessing. And conversely, if there is no obedience to his commandments, there will be a curse. So our good father knows what he is doing. So here, here's the point that I want to make this morning. Here is, when I told you that it applies to you, I really did mean it. This, 
although it may not seem like it, sitting here this morning is one of the most pivotal moments in human history. God creates people, they fall away from him, they disobey, they try to build other kingdoms, other towers to try to make themselves great in the land. And God destroys them with a flood and they come back with vengeance. There's still sin in the world. And then he plucks out of human history one man and makes a covenant to make a people of grace, to make a treasured possession. And he says, I'm going to keep this promise of love and grace to you, Abraham. And it's going to include good news for every family on earth. This is good news for us this morning. This covenant that was made, the unfolding of the covenant where God says, my little children, listen to me. I know who you are by nature. I know how you are to be nurtured. I want to bring you up to be the true beings that I always created you for. I want to bring you into glory. So if you'll just obey the rules that I've placed in front of you, there will be blessing. Now, now, this is an entirely different way of thinking about the law, right? Many of us go to the law or we hear about it in pop culture where people pluck all of these random rules that God makes in the law out of context and they say, see, God hates this type of people or he hates you in this kind of way. But what really is happening here is that God has this little uh, people that he's trying to grow in fear and admonition, to grow into mighty and great and glorious beings just like he had always intended them. And he knows what's best. And so he gives them the law. And the law, like a schoolmaster, actually leads them along the way to grow them in maturity. If you go into the Old Testament and you're confused... Listen, there's a lot of confusing things. We can be honest about that. We can study them. Some of them are very mysterious to us. But what God is trying to do in the law in bringing about a people, writing that law on their hearts like Jeff was talking about a moment ago, this is where you get your sense of right and wrong. You may not have ever known it, but God literally intervenes in all of human history to show us what sin is and what sin isn't. And then we gain these consciences that are passed down through his word, but then also through the formation of parents and families over the course of time. When I said earlier that you can travel abroad and go into different countries in this world, I mean it. I spent most of my childhood in other countries. And I can tell you this, not everybody assumes your morality. Not everybody assumes that what, is, what you think is right or wrong is right or wrong. You will find a variety of opinions on that. But what I'm telling you is, is that we have a spiritual inheritance, a history, a lineage of what is right and wrong that comes from this moment in human history. What I'm trying to show you is, is that this chapter here in, in, uh, in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 8, in the, uh, the parts of Exodus that we read this morning, in the covenants that were given, actually helped form you in ways that you may not even know about. And what God was always trying to do was bring about a people that grew to look like him a kingdom people, a treasured possession. 
So I want for us to remember when we're talking about these promises that were made, when we go into the promised land, when we get back to Joshua chapter 8 and we really dig in, we might make some assumptions. Well, of course they obeyed. Of course they would do what they were commanded to do back in uh, Deuteronomy. Of course they would obey what Moses had said. Let us remember something really briefly before we go back to this passage. Moses is a murderer. We, we talk about the Mosaic co- uh, Covenant and we think there's a father of the faith. He was a murderer. And ever since he led God's people out into the wilderness to go to the promised land, first they grumbled, second they built a, a, a golden calf and bowed down and worshiped to it. When uh, God gave the covenant, uh, gave the commandments to Moses, he came down, found them, he threw them on the ground. Remember how they broke up? This was not a people where it was obvious that once God put them in the land that he had promised them that they were going to start obeying, right? But here in Joshua chapter 8, that's what we find. In Joshua chapter 8, we find his people obeying. Let's read Joshua chapter uh, 8 verse 30. It says this, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, not to a golden calf, not to some new idol, not to the Canaanites idol, but to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal. And I want us to pay attention to this, just as Moses commanded. Just as. Those words are going to be used several times. And what we find here is that where Moses failed to lead, his people, Joshua is stepping up as a good leader. And he listened to Moses. He listened to the law, and he's doing just as he was commanded. The altar is located in its place. The law said that it was to be built on this mountain, and it was done as it is written in the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones. The construction is specific. They did it just the way that they were supposed to. And then it says this, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and a sacrificed a peace offering. So they built this altar, they constructed it just so, and they made the right sacrifice on it. Verse 32 says this, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law. Verse 34 said that he read all the words of the law, the blessing, the curse, all that is written. Not a word was left out, and he read it before all the assembly of Israel, the women and the little ones. He declared the word. Now, just as an aside, this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us as, uh, as parents Uh, For those of us who are blessed to be parents, that's the reason why we need to be like Joshua and actually do just as God commands us to bring our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord for us to disciple them along the way, for us to raise a generation that knows the commandments of God is because when they get to the place where they are needing to obey God, they need to know just how to do it. Why? so that they can grow, so that they can look just like God, so that they can be the people that God has uh, always created. This is one of the reasons why we're so intentional with Kid City. This is one of the reasons why we invite you as parents to make a decision, whether to use Kid City or to bring people into the gathering. We love our kids. We love our women also. Just to make another point, it's specifically in the word here. Yes, in the Old Testament says that he gathered all of the people of Israel, 
all of the women, all of the children came to hear the word of the Lord, to hear the reading of the law. We want to be an intentional people, not segmenting certain people in or out. We want to bring our children into this way that we are called into, and we want to do it just as we are commanded. Verse 33 says this, And all of Israel stood on opposite sides of the ark. What what is this all about? All of Israel gathers around the ark, this uh, golden kind of uh, box that they created, and there they stood in the presence of God. So first they make sacrifices, next they declared the word, now they're standing in the presence. These commandment keepers did just as they were told, and what we need to know, and this is the second point on your card there, is that God's people carefully... Remember that word from Deuteronomy. God's people carefully keep his commands. God's people obeyed by making sacrifices, by publicly declaring God's word, and by gathering together in worship. God commanded these things to form and to nurture his people into more maturity, into righteousness. And this is precisely where it connects with you. This is what God has done all along. Generation after generation after generation of God's treasured possession, his treasured people have been doing this, have been obeying his commands, have been believing that life works best the way that he says so. By believing his promises, by experiencing the fruit and the blessing from his promises and from obedience, this is what God's people do. We believe his promises and we obey his word. Now, for for a lot of us, we might be tempted to think, that seems very narrow, Chris. There are lots of other gods out there and lots of other promises and lots of other moralities and lots of other laws out there. Why would we just choose this one? And what we have to know and understand is, is that you have to choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the God, the God of Israel, the God of his people, the one who is making uh, them into a great nation? Will you be a part of it? Will you be a part of his kingdom or will you be a part of some lesser kingdom? I know that that's a bold statement. I know that that's a bold thing to say, but that's the way that I see it. That's the way that I see this today. Culture today would ask you to follow a million other gods, would follow your own way or to make a law for yourself. But what we see is, is that God has been about writing the law on our hearts and making good on his promises for millennia. You can trust him. This seems to be how God formed an ancient people. But maybe we're still not seeing exactly how it connects to us today, right? Because we're a little different than national Israel. Uh, my, my son actually asked me yesterday, my youngest, Henry, he asked me, Dad, are we Jews? <laughs> it's a fun, kind of complicated question to try to a- answer for like a little kid of seven years old. I said, no, 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 we're, we're not Jews. Ethnically, we're not Jewish. The Taylor family is not Jewish. It's not Taylor Steen. But, but we are part of God's people. And so I got this joyful opportunity to tell my child, no, 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 but we're a part of what God has been doing all along. We are a part of his people. We've been grafted in. We're a part of all of this. 
But the, the question being asked uh, still kind of resonates. How does this connect with me? How do I understand God's relationship with Israel? And that's where we have to remember that God's promise of grace to Abraham and his offspring extends to every family. In Joshua chapter 8, we get a pattern of sacrifice-making, word-declaring, careful commandment-keeping, and worship-gathering. That's the pattern that we see. So we've got to ask the question, has God kept his promise? Are God's people perfectly, perpetually renewing his covenant? And that's where we see Christ enter the picture. So we see the pattern in the Old Testament of sacrifice and word declaring and uh, attending of God's glory in the ark. This is how Christ enters in. All of these point to Christ. He is the sacrifice. He is the word. He is the commandment keeper. He is the ark. Jesus first is the one and final perfect sacrifice. If we were to turn this morning over to Hebrews chapter 10, you would read this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices of the Old Testament that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a a remainder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, when he said above, you neither desire nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offering according to the law, he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by, the will, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What is that all about? What is, what is Hebrews 10 all about? In the Old Testament, God's people were commanded to make these sacrifices, and then they went and obediently did them. But what Hebrews is saying is, is that that never could have taken away all of their sin. There had to be one who came. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the one, final, perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews chapter 10 says that we are sanctified by his death once for all. Why why doesn't the church make sacrifices anymore? It's because we look back on the one final sacrifice, the one who is the perfect sacrifice, our Jesus, and know that there is no longer a law for us to make sacrifices because it's been fulfilled, it's been completed. But Jesus is not just the one final perfect sacrifice, he's also the one true word. We're told that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and that we saw, that we saw grace and truth in him. So it's not just that Jesus was the sacrifice, it's also that he was the word, but it's not just that he was the word, it's that he's also the commandment keeper. He says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the Lord will know who the Father is. So for us, when we hear about the law, 
When you hear a sermon about the law, when you hear about God's people going and doing exactly as God said, you're going, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. don't get legalistic on me here, right? Because all of us knows that even if we did believe that the law could perfectly be kept, that we ourselves could never keep it. But when we look at Jesus, we see that there is one who can perfectly keep the commandments. So it may have been that Joshua uh, perfectly kept the Mosaic command to build the altar just so and to write all of the words, to inscribe all of the words of the law and to make their sacrifices and to declare the word just as Moses said. But when we keep on reading, when we keep on studying in Joshua after Easter, when we get back to the book, what we're going to immediately find is, is that God's people stopped doing exactly as he commanded. This is just one instance where they were obedient. But there are tons of instances just like us where we fall down in front of the law. But Jesus never did. He kept and fulfilled the complete law Jesus is the one final perfect sacrifice. He is the one true word. He is the commandment keeper, and he is also the ark of the new covenant. It's such a strange thing, right? When we read in Deuteronomy, when we read here in Joshua chapter 8, Moses gave really specific instructions on which tribe was supposed to be standing on which mountain and which people were supposed to be bearing the ark in front and putting it down in the presence of all of the people. It was really exacting. And what was happening is, is that God's people were between two mountains and gathering around the ark. They were gathering around the ark of the covenant. They were gathering around God's presence. Jesus is the ark of the new covenant. And he is, even this morning, today, he is the one that we gather around in worship. There may not be mountains in here. This may be a much less majestic setting. It may be a lot smaller people in this room, right? But what we're doing here this morning is gathering around the ark of Christ to experience his presence together. This is what we are doing. Jesus is the one final, perfect sacrifice. He's the one true word. He's the commandment keeper. He is the ark of the new covenant. He's the one that we gather around. God made covenant. God made promise. And these things were for his grace. They were to communicate his grace. First, to literally form a nation, but then in the fuller flourishing of Christ, we see that Christ fulfills and completes the demands of the law and then extends God's blessing beyond the people of Israel to you. First Peter chapter 2 says this, and I want for us to pay very close attention here. It says that you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own what? Possession. We are that people. This week in our discipleship groups, I actually want for us to contemplate what it is that this same language from Deuteronomy chapter 6, this race, this royal priesthood, this holy people, this holy nation, this people for his own possession, what does that mean? Christ has made you into his treasured possession, into a holy people. And so we've got to ask the question, just in closing, what ought we do? 
This is great that these promises that were made in the Old Testament millennia ago were kept for us and that God made them and is keeping them in us and will one day complete them. So what ought we do? We ought keep the commandments of sacrifice. We ought chisel the law of Moses into the brick of this room. We ought uh, build an ark. We ought keep the law. No, 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 no. We don't have to do those things. Hebrews 10 says that these things were a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form. Here's what you need to know this morning. Beloved, Christ is our way. He is our truth. He is our life. If anyone would come to the Father, they come through him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Christ says, go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What we need to know this morning, beloved, is that if you want to go back to the old law and try to follow, jot and tittle every single thing, you're missing the point. But if you want to take a look at Jesus and find him to be the full fulfillment of these things, if you want to find a salvation in him, you can't stop there. You also then have to believe what he says, follow his commands, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. So the last point here this morning on your sheet is this. You are a possessed people who keeps Christ's commands. You're a treasured possession. You're a people for his own possession. You're a possessed people who keeps Christ's commands. Let me pray that that would be true of us here at City Church. God and Father, we see types and shadows in the Old Testament. We see promises uh, kept to your people, Israel, but we see that they were just a foreshadow, that they were a type for us to see in Christ, the full fulfillment of all of these things. So we are gathered here this morning not to make sacrifices to you, God, because we know that that has already been completed in Christ. We don't come here as a people pretending like we have followed every one of your laws or even that we are a moral people. We come here knowing that Christ has fulfilled everything. He is our commandment keeper. Father, we do not come here to chisel the words of your law into anything or, uh, Lord God, to gather around some golden box because we have Jesus. God and Father, we love that you have sent Jesus, that he is uh, the perfect expression of the true realities, the eternal realities. We thank you that you have brought us in, that you have grafted us into a people, that your promises are being made good in this very room this morning. God and Father, we pray that you would allow for us to gather around Jesus, to trust and treasure him, but also to be changed by him, to believe the things that he has said and to follow his commands and teach others to do so. God and Father, I pray that that would be true here at City Church. Will Christ be our everything? And will we be so in love with him that we would follow his commandments in the new covenant? God, we're so grateful for your word Lord, for the ways that the Old Testament points us toward eternal truths and allows us to experience being your treasured possession this morning. We are grateful. So, Father, I pray that you would shape our worship as we uh, conclude our service this morning. Lord, as we take communion, as we sing songs to you, as we give tithes to you, as we pray with others, uh, Lord, 
We pray that all of this would be an expression of true worship, and we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.